Welcome to Funny, They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No No relation. relation. We are super excited to bring you the full interview we had with Jerry Ordway from this past summer in July of 2021. You may recall we included some excerpts from the interview in our Nuclon episode, and we wanted to share the full conversation that we had with Deordster here. Enjoy. We, we are here uh, as part of a podcast called Funny They Don't Look Jewish, and we're looking for explicitly Jewish content mm-hmm. in superhero comics. It's just an area we've always felt connected to and wanted to see that kind of representation there. And we've gone all the way through, and we're pretty now deep into the like deep cuts of characters. and. Right. We discovered that Al Rothstein is canonically Jewish. Adam Smasher, aka Nuklan. Nuklan. How do you pronounce that, by the way? We just always said Nuklan. Nuklan. Oh, like a nuke. Yeah. Okay, great. Like uh, the uh, nu- neutron. <laughs> like Jimmy yeah. Neutron. There nice. we go. Okay. Oh perfect. my God. I would so watch that show. Al- Al- Albert Nuklan. Jimmy Nuklan. Either way, I'd watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, and so we discovered he he was Jewish and we sort of accidentally discovered all this Jewish content about him. And we sort of identify explicitly Jewish content as characters identifying as Jewish, characters reading Hebrew or, you know, in a Jewish prayer service or ritual, like a Jewish wedding or a bar mitzvah or something. So, or celebrating Hanukkah, like the thing has done That's from cool. time to time. So that's sort of the kind of thing we're looking for. And we were just delighted to see that Al Rothstein had all this stuff. And I was even more delighted to see that you, one of my favorite Superman and other creators, created co-created him with Roy Thomas. <laughs> the, the thing that was shocking most was, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, on Wikipedia, you're listed as Jewish. It specifically says Mr. Ordway oh. is Jewish. And it's because you're included in a list of Jewish creators whose works... Oh would be given away at a panel put on by 2015 uh, New York Comic Con and the American Jewish Historical Society set, included you on this list. So any idea why you're listed as Jewish? <laughs> no, I just, I remember for some reason, I remember somebody telling me that Chaikin, Howard Chaikin was talking about it. Maybe it was around that time, you know, like he said, oh, Ordway is a member of the tribe. And I was like, what tribe? <laughs> I was just, I was, I didn't understand what he was talking about. Um, I don't know. I, oh, so I, we have Howard Chaikin to. Uh... Maybe, well, he might've just been mm. seeing what was like, if he saw the list of, of creators, maybe that that's where it came from. But. Uh, well, for the, the few days, the few days that I thought you were a member of the tribe. I was very excited. So you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask that Howard like induct you in a way and say like honorarily yeah. you're a part of yeah, it he now. Did, like a special, whatever. He took me to temple. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do. You have to go to temple. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> right. It was just funny. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't really, uh, I don't think I've ever even discussed much religion stuff. So I don't even know where that would you know, come from. I mean, I'm I'm honored, you know, to be part of the part of the group. Well, yeah. We're honored I mean, think, to have you. Yeah, we're honored to have you, and also I think like 
one of the things that Henry and I wind up talking about a lot is just the importance, you know, the language of today is of representation and how great it is to have Jewish characters represented. So, I mean, regardless, I think we're just both appreciative to have one more comic member of the tribe that like <laughs> you did co-create and did make. Right. And um, we found, I think in, in, in 1999, DC published this like comic book slash newsletter called alter ego number one and there's uh -huh. a piece written by roy thomas that says it has like your input on also and it was going through all the characters in infinity inc and you know yeah. the background and the creations and so um you know roy thomas acknowledges that cyclotron which is nuclon's um grandfather right this film that he'd been a super uh had been the grandfather of albert rothstein and then it says right. became the grandpa of alan albert rothstein whom dan and i named after science fiction comic fan and friend alan rothstein out in la we thought at high time comic books had an overtly jewish superhero maybe we were the first with that bit maybe we weren't we didn't know and we didn't much care um <laughs> so great line wonderful to have and i think we were curious to know um were you a part of that process at all do you remember any like sort of behind the scenes conversations about the identities of nuclon in particular any of the other characters um just that it was part of his i mean we were given like a, I'm trying to remember how it worked. Mike Macklin and I were working on the art for Infinity Inc. We were also doing All-Star Squadron. So we had worked together on the uh, character designs and Roy would throw us a name, basically. <clears throat> he would throw out a name and, and uh, for some reason I re remember Nuclon being just because he was going to be kind of uh, connected to the Atom. Roy thought it was probably kind of interesting to have him be the really tall guy instead of yeah. the Adam in the comics, the 1940s Adam was a very short guy. So uh, uh, that, that I remember that. And I remember when we were doing the uh, first issue that there was some biographical info in like flashback in the first issue of Infinity Inc. Um, but we actually drew the characters first in All-Star Squadron because it was a time travel story, to, a way to introduce them. And that has the All-Star Squadron annual number two, I think it was, has the origin of the uh, Nuclon's mother. I think she's the yeah. she's a baby in the story and she's somehow very important to the resolution. And Cyclotron is kind of, as I recall, he was kind of like a maybe a wayward good guy who really was a bad guy in the storyline, but then he kind of redeems himself but I remember that they were they were trying to protect this baby, and the baby I think is the character that then winds up being Nuclon's mother or something. Or yeah, I think that was how it worked. So the Cyclotron character was the grandfather. Then yeah, his daughter would be the mother. It was, you know, again that was like more than thirty, probably thirty years ago at least, right? Yeah, <laughs> more at than least. thirty or forty years ago almost. Yeah, still yeah. impressive. You're able to I just mean, pull all that back. It was pre-crisis, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. It would have been around 1983, yeah. possibly, and I think Infinity Inc. debuted in '84. Um, but it could have been early '84 for them. I don't know. I mean, again, that I just remember that storyline. Uh, I remember, like, when I was drawing the, or you know, when I was drawing the book, I was and drawing the character that I tried to to make each of the infinity in characters distinct just because when you have a comic with group a group of characters they're not always in costume and i always felt like they should be 
identifiable somehow and you wouldn't want to have two blonde characters and you know what i mean it, it's yeah. like if they're out of costume their comic characters kind of tend to be generic because you're limited with uh you know pen and ink um but i always tried to, to give them some basis some kind of distinctive characteristic and uh i remember with nuclon was the uh crazy mohawk <laughs> he had like a mohawk so yeah hey when he was out of costume nobody really <laughs> had a trinity problem identifying him right between the uh, height and the mohawk he just sort of like stands out (laughs) yeah and the only jew on the team yeah i I mean i I believe when when roy was writing the book he probably added more from after i i was on it for the first year and then um the story continued and i think i do recall in reading those that he added more um religious background to it so it wasn't just like a you know, some kind of a stunt casting kind of thing or whatever. I mean, he did yeah. try to, I think he tried to give it a little, a little historical backdrop and a little, you know, religious backdrop. Um, but my, I mean, most of my knowledge of uh, Jewish culture, I mean, my, my wife, her mother is Jewish. And I remember, you know, like the idea of, you know, the various holidays and things like that. But uh, um, Jerry Siegel, you know, I know Jerry Siegel, I, I got to know him a little bit. And uh, um, I just never, I don't think I ever knew anybody who was like a uh, strict observant, you know, Jew with the, you know, not being able to, like, I think you weren't supposed to turn off a light or you couldn't, you, you know what I mean? There was a something like that <laughs> where you couldn't use an elevator. You had to use stairs. And it was, I just yeah. found that kind of fascinating, but I thought it was interesting that you, you know, your level of commitment is much more than me. I was raised Catholic and uh, our big thing was just that we, we couldn't eat meat on Friday, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. relaxed that yeah. rule after a while. But when I was a kid, if you <laughs> ate meat on Friday, you know, they, you were going to go to hell, you know, yeah. there was, Go yeah, we have versions right. of I that. I have vivid, too. vivid memories. <laughs> I think in high school, one year during Passover, when I, you know, you can't eat leavened products, so no bread. And I was hanging out with my best friend who was Catholic and his family's Catholic. And it happened oh, to be no. a Friday, and we're trying to find a place to go. And we're like, well, there can't be any bread for Brandon, and there can't be any meat for uh, the whole family. And so right, we're like, right. we're, you know, this was a time before uh, <laughs> there was a, a plethora of vegetarian options everywhere. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I have, yeah. a, I have an interesting Lent That's story, so too. Not that it ties into your other stuff, but when I was a kid, yeah. I went through, uh, we had to go through commu- confirmation and then communion happened as the second stage. But confirmation, the communion was like a big deal. And I was fairly young. I remember being maybe 10, eight, eight or 10 years old at the most. And uh, I had, we observed Lent it was a very big thing because I was going through all that at the time. And I was, you know, like suddenly oh, we can't have meat, whatever you gave up, you had to give up your favorite thing. And at the time, this will date it if anybody wants to look this up on Internet Movie Database. But my favorite TV show was No Time for Sergeants. And it was only like, I think it only lasted a single season. But that was my favorite show. And I gave it up for Lent. So I thought that was like a big, you know, a big thing to give up, right? Um, So my brother... My older brother got sick. He had a burst appendicitis and he was in the hospital. So I would go with my mother to visit the hospital, children's hospital, but I couldn't go in to see him because he was, you know, 
fairly ill. So my mother would park me in the lobby where there was a TV and I was supposed to sit there for whatever hour, uh, an hour or something, you know, and there's a nurse or somebody at a desk. So they were kind of supervising me. Um, and the TV came on and it was no time for sergeants. And I went, oh no. So I went up to the desk and I told the lady, I said, uh, is it possible for you to change the channel? Because I gave up this show for Lent. And she said, well, a lot of people seem to enjoy it. I can't do that for you. So I turned around and I decided to go outside. This is like nine o'clock at night or whatever. It was, it was dark. I decided to go outside and walk around the block. Meanwhile, my mom comes down and she doesn't see me. And she thinks, you know, like what happened to my darling little child? You know, one child's sick, the other one's been kidnapped. Oh, <laughs> and uh, I, I guess I only got away with it because of my good excuse. You know, she, she went outside and I had just completed like maybe the first circle around the block and she was like, what are you doing out here? I had to explain oh, that. But I don't think anybody else can have that, ex that excuse that they gave up a TV show that nobody remembers. <laughs> it's still amazing. Like, I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. You mentioned, I couldn't, you, you mentioned Jerry Siegel and that you got to know him um, a little bit. Did, or fairly well, did, did he ever talk about being Jewish or if that was a part of his life in any I, way I, I, or because that was the first person that came to yeah, mind yeah, for you. Yeah, I, so. I got the sense that he was, um, I also got the, I think it's funny because I think when you see people at a, at a comic convention or whatever, that's not the first thing they're going to talk about. Um, but I got the sense that he was fairly religious. And I mean, I did, you know, again, while I was on Superman and that experience of meeting him and learning a little of the history, I didn't realize that a lot of the names of, uh, you know, the Kryptonians, some of that came from Jewish culture as well, which was interesting. The other one- Did he confirm that with you? No, but I'd read, oh, like, yeah. I, I read interviews with him yeah. about that. And right. uh, um, the other one that surprised me, again, it was like in the mid eighties, I got to know, or I got to, to be friendly with Jack and Roz Kirby. And I, mm -hmm. his work, I never really saw it until I was older, really, but his work was very religious. And he was drawing from a lot of, uh, you know, sources like that. And, and I didn't really appreciate it until I think I was probably older, you know? Um, it, I, I guess it works on different levels. It goes over your head. If you don't understand it, you just think, oh, that's a cool concept or whatever. Um, but once you understand it, you go, wow, that's really interesting because I never, again, at a comic convention, he's not going to sit down and, and tell you all about, you know, religion or whatever. But uh, um, I understand that he was a pretty, uh, he and his wife were practicing um, and they were, you know, I don't know if they were strict, you know, probably in the sense of having, you know, the Passovers and Seders and things like that. But uh, um he seemed like a spiritual guy, though. I mean, just when you, you know, you talk to him, he had kind of a, uh, there was a peace about him, even though you knew he was kind of a feisty, combative guy. He was just a really sweet person, you know, but there was definitely like, a, he was something special about him. And I, I, I never really thought of the, you know, how much he drew from religion for the concepts, because, you know, as a kid, I read Thor. And Thor just was was like Norse gods, you know. It's like how does that relate? But yet, 
it all kind of ties together because the you know the the histories and the stories go back so far you know um mm. it's almost like the like a shared there's a certain shared quality to a lot of the the ancient um religious stories you know the stuff i heard when i was in in church as a kid and and uh you know that was always probably the most interesting thing about being in church as a kid was when the priest would tell a story from the bible you know um because they felt kind of like bigger than life you know even though there were life lesson kind of things they always they 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 felt probably relatable to comics in a way to me to my childhood head you know my brain and then i truly believe that a lot of this stuff is is historically accurate you know I think it's just a matter of it being stories being told down by a verbal method rather than, you know, all of them being in words or whatever. A lot of stuff is, is retold. And, and uh, um, but that stuff fascinates me. So, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't feel as religious as I did as I was a kid, but I, I feel spiritual and I still feel like the history of that intrigues me an, an awful lot. Making the weird jump from like, the ancient to sort of like some of the modern mysteries if you don't mind one of the one of the questions we had you might not know this at all that's totally fine but um in that article there was a mention also of alan rothstein as opposed to the character albert rothstein so roy thomas had mentioned him and one of the issues that henry and i are going to cover we have a flashback to nuclon's bar mitzvah and there's a little note that says special thanks to alan rothstein bar mitzvah advisor um so clearly he's <laughs> someone that roy thomas knew <laughs> <laughs> and we were just curious since you got to work with him on this. Is this someone like, did he, who was Alan Rothstein? Do you have any idea where you connected no, to I him? Just, in any I would way? imagine it, it was somebody that he knew in Los Angeles. Uh, okay. Um, he, he, I think he moved to it South Carolina or something back in the uh, later 80s like, or early 90s. But when he was in Los Angeles, I think he, you know, he was probably in a more social, situation he was also writing movie stuff and i think he had mm. you know he and, and uh, another writer jerry conway were, were would write screenplays and treatments together so i i would imagine that their circle of you know casual friends was probably fairly wide um but i think it's fascinating i mean one other thing that he did and he and his wife dan had done with uh infinity inc was they had he had come up with an idea of how many characters there were going to be. And once we went back and forth to, to determine the, the lineup of the book, the core group, which was about eight characters, he had a, for his wife and he, I don't know who was the, the, uh, the genealogical or not uh, the horoscope person, but uh, so they had a horoscopes written for all the characters. So they basically, he must have, or she, between them, they must have determined birth dates, birth month, birth years for each of the characters. And then they had a reading done for each of them. And uh, I always thought that was really fascinating because as, as any writer working on a monthly comic, it's easy to run out of ideas. You know, I mean, you're working on a monthly comic and presumably if you have something that lasts longer than a year, you're always looking for fresh angles. And I always thought it was fascinating with the horoscope thing was that if you took someone's horoscope and someone was a Sagittarius versus a Virgo or whatever, the character traits are different. And those character traits, if you were stuck as a writer or if you were just like 
okay, which one of these characters would be impulsive and do this or this? It's like a, a almost like a cheat sheet that you've created for yourself. Um, so it was, I thought that was really fascinating and it made me wonder, you know, I guess even at the time, whether that was a, an offshoot of working in Hollywood and, you know, cause you hear about um, actors coming up with histories for their characters beyond what's even being performed just so they have like a, you know, a more fully uh, realized sense of what a character is and, and how to play him or her. Yeah. And I think like TV show writers have like a show Bible, right? Where there's sort of yeah. all these details yeah, yeah. that might never make it onto the screen, but it's yeah. really important to know it. But the then at room. some point they might, it might come into play. You know, that's the yeah. thing that's beautiful about having too much uh, research or too much, you know, information like that is you either like when you're doing a, like a comic character, you can draw from your own life. You can draw from things you remember from your childhood or, or friends or what have you. But uh, um, having something like that, I always thought was a really kind of fascinating way to, to approach it because someone's horoscope born in 19 whatever year. So they would have, if they were, they debuted in 84 and they were 20, so they could have been 1965, 64, whatever. Someone born in 64 under a certain sign is going to be slightly different than somebody born in 65 under the same sign because of the star positions. And it, it, it's fascinating, yeah. you know. It, yeah. Did you have uh, on that little cheat sheet for for uh, Nuclon, like El Rustin, Jewish? Da -da -da -da, like. <laughs> I wish I still had it. I was I, I was you know I, I was looking for it at one point a couple of years ago because I, I wound up writing a, a two issue uh, Infinity Inc story for DC that Roy didn't want to do, and I was looking oh that would come in really handy and I couldn't find it. Oh. <laughs> all the stuff I saved so much paper, but I didn't save that. But I have such a vivid memory of it. Um, and the, they're interestingly the the TV show Stargirl, <clears throat> excuse me, is coming um, returning for season two in the middle of August, I think. And they're introducing a couple Infinity Inc characters, Jade and Obsidian, who were Green Lantern's children. And it made me wonder, since they they seem to be building an Infinity Inc, whether they're going to introduce Nuclon or, you know, uh, even as a, even without his secret identity you know uh if al will be in it <laughs> yeah i mean that would be awesome if he was i know he's going to be in the new black adam movie yeah not played by a, a jewish actor but um yeah, i wasn't sure what the the i don't I, again i i'm not sure i don't think i've even seen what the actor looks like but the movies are always so different that it's hard to you know, it's hard to feel disappointed one way or another because you know it's not going to be what you're thinking it's going to be or whatever. It's almost like a guarantee to be disappointed before you even see it. Is that is that a um, what you experience when you see one of your creations on screen, or is it like, oh my god, I can't believe something that I made is now in a movie or a TV show, or it's somewhere in between? Mostly thrilling. I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, it's like it feels. You know, there's, it's like nobody pulls up to the house and gives you a wheelbarrow full of money. It's not like that. Um, it's more about like recognition and feeling like, oh, see that character that I fought to, to create or co-create or whatever has some enduring quality that somebody found reason 30 years later to put it in a TV show, knowing that other people will recognize it. That's the key. They're not doing it because, oh, this is really obscure. They do it because they know there's fans out there who might be, you know, in their 40s or 50s or 60s 
who remember it. And uh, so it's like an added bonus or an extra added value or something. I mean, they use Nuclon in, uh, or I don't know if they called them Atom Smasher in The Flash a couple seasons ago. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of disappointed because it was only one, you know, like the one episode. But uh, the disappointing part in any of that type of scenario is that when you it's a one episode, one type of thing, they're just going to do whatever it's pop, the character's power and you're not going to really get any kind of characterization because they're just one episode guest star, you know? Wasn't they he played by uh, WWE's The uh, Edge for- uh, I don't you know, remember. I think so. I think, he, I think Adam so. Copeland, The Edge? Uh, yeah, Maybe. I think he played That's him. funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember Actually, that they had, a, they had like a kind of a, a stock CGI thing where they made, they were making characters really gigantic and, yeah. and it felt like, oh, he doesn't really have to be like 15 feet tall, you know? Yeah. Which is funny. Right. I'm He's... curious actually, since you, since you mentioned about like, you'd only, you don't really get a chance to delve into who they are as a character from your own perspective as the co-creator, like how, how would you define the character of Adam Smasher? Like what, what is that character? Who is he to you? Well, when I was, see, when I, I remember at the time when we were, when Mike and I were doing the art, it was, a, to me, Again, I would always try to be like a method actor as an artist. So I would try to find ways to have the characters have some kind of distinctive thing. Like they would either pose themselves in a certain way or, um, uh, you know, like with, with, with Nuclon, I always felt like he was a little bit awkward. And <clears throat> he was, uh, you know, there, there were other characters like the Hector Hall was the son of Hawkman and Hawkwoman. And he was the perfect, you know, chiseled, blonde, Adonis character who was very confident because he came from this, you know, kind of uh, confident setting. You know, parents were archaeologists and a lot of parents and characters were archaeologists in the old, old comics. But anyways. Apparently so you're not the only one who had an obsession with, uh, yeah. with archaeology, huh? <laughs> so he was, he was like the, the jock. You know, he was the confident jock. He had the, you know, the beautiful girlfriend who's Wonder Woman, Earth 2 Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor's daughter. And she's basically, you know, an Amazonian or half Amazonian. So it's like, there's your king and queen of the prom. Mm -hmm. Al was, was the uh, kind of tall, kind of gangly guy who, with, before he had his powers, he was like seven feet tall. So he was somebody that I could kind of relate to because when I was a kid, I had a growth spurt from freshman year to, you know, sophomore year in high school. And uh, I went from like five, nine to six, two. And I just remember that feeling, you know, I remember the feeling of being the small freshman and then suddenly being the, the feeling of being tall, but I was also incredibly skinny and awkward. You know what I mean? Mm. I just felt yes. that. So that, <laughs> I always felt like that was a, an aspect to him that, that, uh, would play into his personality as well. Like he wouldn't, he wasn't the, he was the guy who was probably looking for the team. <clears throat> you know, he was looking for friends in that sense. You know, he was looking for that. Whereas the other, these other couple of characters were definitely like the leaders, you know, no preordained. They were going to be the ones that whatever they say, yeah, you know, you go there, sure. You know, you're going to do it. Um, so that's always assumed. I mean, he, he felt like that his, and his backstory was also that, I, as I recall, he was raised by his mother, you know, not with a father, 
And I mean, that was my situation as well. So I, I mean, you, when you're drawing these things, you, you do, you know, you try to put a little of yourself. So I think I probably empathized more and, and, you know, felt more of him in that, in that set, uh, in that situation. The only downside there is that, you know, again, working on just the first year of the book, I think Roy got into more of the character stuff that I would have loved to have done in the first year. He did more of that later on. And it, always kind of uh, annoyed me, <laughs> you know, because if, yeah. if he had done that in the first year, I think I would have been happier and I would have stayed with it. But instead, mm -hmm. I just, I was a little disappointed. It, it, it was one of those projects that I had great hopes for and it didn't feel distinctive enough in the first year. You know, I just felt like uh, um, it was the same basic story we did in All-Star Squadron. It was just that it was now set in the 80s you know mm -hmm. um and these everybody was doing at the time like dc had the teen titans and the teen titans at that time they were doing great um really interesting stuff with characterization you know they could take the robin character and turn him into nightwing but they could take robin and give him a you know an alien girlfriend but they dealt with it in a somewhat more realistic way and there was a little more angst and there was a little more um you know, human emotion involved. It wasn't just, oh, let's go fight the bad guys or whatever. So, and that, that always appealed to me. And that's, I think that's kind of where I, what I found as a, as a, an approach, a way into doing Superman was to try to do him as the man and not as the Superman, you know, um, everything is filtered through his, his, uh, you know, his earthly parents' wisdom and, and his experience on earth, as opposed to you know, another way. I mean, that's with most characters. I feel like that's the, that's what you would, if you read about a superhero, that's the part that you could, you could feel familiar with, you know. Um, but anyways, that, that, that was, and, and again, one of the things that I was going to, I was thinking about too, and trying to think of something to talk about on your show. <laughs> one of the things that I, as I, I grew up, in the 60s but 70s i was starting i was in becoming a teenager and 70s and 80s were very formative and i i, I always think back to how important there's certain tv things that i remember really vividly and one of them was holocaust that was like meryl streep or something it was a mini series but the other one was um uh winds of war and war and remembrance which were big you know and they were all about the the, the rise of Nazism and the, um, you know, the, the uh, I don't know, it, it, besides the killing of the Jews, it was the actually displacing them and putting them in places they, you know, like weren't, uh, weren't before or whatever. And that stuff, I remember that bringing me to tears as a, as a teen, you know, because I really didn't have any of that historical background. I mean, we, we learned probably more about World War II watching combat on TV than we did in, in school. You know, it was like, oh, the good guys won. And that's kind of where the story ended. So I was, I was fascinated by that. So when I started doing All-Star Squadron and, you know, it was set in 1942, hmm. it basically fostered that love of history, especially that time period. Just being fascinated by how somebody or some race is you know, labeled as a problem and how transparent it is now as an adult, like 
looking at that and seeing how these things are always done for a political purpose. You know, I mean, it's like it, it's 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 like terrible things happen to people, to races of people or, or religions of people based on someone choosing them to be the good boogeyman, you know? Yeah. And uh, and it, it's just crazy. Well, yeah. for, for those for those, you know, uh, people that you mentioned, minorities, marginalized people in general, how do you approach bringing minority cultures and identities that weren't necessarily your own, as you mentioned, into the comics that you created? Well, I think the biggest thing that I've, I mean, I don't think I'm any saint about it, but I've always been really, I've tried to be conscious um, of not being dismissive and to try to be, I guess you'd say inclusive. I mean, I, I always try to, like when I, when I was doing, whenever I had an opportunity to do it, like when I was writing stuff, you know, I could do things that are different than you can do when you're just drawing a script or even if you're working from a plot and you're adding things. Um, like when I worked with Roy, Roy did some, uh, again, very progressive stuff with, he introduced uh, Amazing Man and he kind of used the, a little bit of the, um, the Olympic uh, stuff from uh, um, Jesse Owens, you know, in, the, in that character, he kind of baked some of that in there. And I always thought that was great. And I felt like that was a way to address, in a way, I mean, it's funny to address a 1940s thing where, yeah, in the 1940s, you didn't see black characters except as waiters or, you know, maids or something like that. The same as you didn't see Asian characters except as, you know, um, villains or as, you know, house servants or something like that. So I think that was like a really clever way of putting a little diversity into something that was set in the 40s. But I've seen, again, you go to comic shows and that's, I mean, it, the, the best part of that experience is talking to people and meeting people. And over the 40 years I've been doing it, that still is the most fun, you know, to find out even when people don't agree with what you say or whatever, I'm happy to talk to anybody. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll argue with you if you're, if I think you're uh, wrong or whatever, I'm not just going to go get away. I think you have to at least give an opportunity to try to talk to people. But anyways, <clears throat> what I've noticed is there's like a whole generation at this point of kids who were maybe some of them in comics who thought like Amazing Man was the most amazing thing because, wow, there's a black character in this 1940s thing. And um, I've seen in a different way, like I have a, uh, my first, our first child was a daughter, my daughter, Rachel. And when she was little, I would take her to comic conventions. This was during the late nineties. And uh, you would see like all the stripperella type characters at the comic shows. And that was the only female type representation. There really wasn't any character in the comic at that time outside of Archie comics that you could see her seeing and seeing something positive. You know what I mean? Like she's Catwoman with her high heels and her, you know, sexy poses or whatever. That's not what you're going to want. You know, she's not going to want to read that, but it embarrasses you as a dad to realize that all the female characters are, are basically pinup poses. Right? right. So I've always tried to steer clear of that. Like when I was doing Shazam, Mary Marvel, she was a, an equal character. 
I always tried to treat her in, in, in a positive way and not as just visual a visual way. And again, a lot of that stuff goes against the grain because the comic industry has always been predominantly male. And it's you see it in through your kids' eyes that an industry is not welcoming to a girl audience. That was like a major revelation. You know, I was kind of uh, uh, amazed by that. But uh, but yeah, I see it with you know meeting meeting kids and and you see like recently within the last five maybe ten years maybe five ten years DC has introduced a um, Muslim Green Lantern character or whatever. And I do see people reflecting that and, and you know, it's like, oh, look, now we have a, a comic I can show and look there, you know, here's a character like you and he's a superhero or she's a superhero or something. So I think that's really positive. You know, I think um, that's the type of thing you can do as a comic book person because no one from the top down is going to say you must do this. You know, I mean, they may be doing it. I don't know if they do that now. Maybe it's possible. But at the time, most of the, the more you know, again, they're not really progressive, but I guess you'd say progressive things. You would do them because like when I was doing Superman, I'd go, wow, every character in this book is white. There's no, you know, uh, characters of color. There's no characters, anything different than what existed in the 50s, you know? So I, um, Mike Macklin and I created Gangbuster, who is a Hispanic character. And, you know, we basically, when I was writing the book and when Byrne was, was, writing it and we we're co-plotting we got gangbuster to the point where he was dating lois lane seriously you know and it was never an issue of like oh my god lois lane and a hispanic you know that never that never occurred to any of us as a thing like oh we're trying to force this down anybody's throat or or whatever but uh but that's how it happens you know i mean that's what you do you do it because you look and you go wow this is all the same you know and kirby did it in the in the 60s, I think Kirby probably more so than Stan Lee, because I believe Black Panther, for example, came out of his sketchbook. Um, you know, I, I think that <clears throat> that stuff was important then because it sets some sort of precedent and it becomes important. Like you're saying, you don't think about it, but like Nuclon, Al Roth, I mean, are there other, how many other characters are visibly Jewish within comics, which is an industry that was founded by Jews, you know? Yeah, that, that's sort of our whole uh, mission slash premise, like what, looking at people like Siegel and Schuster, Kirby, yeah. as you mentioned, Lee, and like where are the, the characters that would have reflect their actual um, experience? I mean, when you asked how many, not many, we're nearing yeah. the end, <laughs> we think, but um, we've, you know. Well, do, we've, you, do you know the story about, I mean, you might not, I don't, you probably do know, um, do you know who Gene Luen Yang is, the writer? Yes, yes for this, Smashes the Clam, Superman Smashes the Clam. Well, he did this, yeah, and that's a great book. He, he did this really interesting thing, which I only heard of because my daughter's a big fan of, uh, of his writing, and she kind of got me to read some of this stuff, that, not the Superman, but before that. And he did a thing, he worked on a thing called The Green Turtle or something. And apparently this was like a 1940s character but the kind of cute part and the interesting part about this character was that the artist, I guess the creator of the character was an Asian, maybe Chinese, I think he was, but he, he couldn't make, I mean, he wanted to make the character Chinese, but they were like, there was resistance to it. So he kind of covertly made the character Chinese. Like he always avoided drawing the face apparently. And he, 
he did all these things, but wow. the character is clearly Chinese. So when I think Gene had re like had found this character again through some research or whatever, and he did new adventures of the character, establishing him as you know the first Chinese or Asian superhero. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting. So cool. But again, it's a case of the the artist in this case probably trying to kind of get around whatever company policy or the writer's idea and putting a lot of his own ideas and, and maybe bits of culture that he knew into the baking them into the character without being overt because he couldn't be overt, you know. And the comic book type coloring, it's not like, you know, in the 40s or whatever, they made Asians yellow. That's not a realistic skin color. So, you know what I mean? That's, there's no, if you were an Asian and you looked at this comic book, you could go, hey, that's, that's like me. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. a stereotype. Yeah, I don't get to see his face, but I see these little things drawn in the background that clearly, you know, are cultural or whatever. So I think that's kind of cool. I mean, it's a, it's a cool way of kind of uh, subverting someone else's intent in a way and, and getting your, you know, uh, your ideas in there, whether, you know, whether somebody's aware of them or not. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of sort of ideas people might not be aware of, like moving back a little bit. So, you know, you were asking us about how many other Jewish characters there are. One of the, our first character we covered was The Thing, right? From Fantastic right, Four. Right. Obviously, there was lots of evidence that we found, including a famous holiday card Jack Kirby made of the thing being Jewish well before he ever appeared as Jewish right. in the comics, right? We didn't see it till 2002 when Carl Kiesel sort of wrote a story where he's Jewish, but like we knew he was Jewish from before. So since you had mentioned also sort of these like, you know, the star charts and all these things that are in the background, we were just curious, is it pretty common to have that kind of like, aspects of characters identity whether it be like this one's actually jewish this one's actually muslim were those kind of things known among creators even if you weren't allowed to show it in the pages is that something that would like i, I think certain some creators would would you know could telegraph their intent okay i know that when um i don't think one of the big problems and again this is i'm not complaining about it, i'm just saying like here's how it works you create a character for marvel or dc like DC allowed something called character equity, which means that if they made a toy or they made a movie or a TV show with Nuclon, Roy Thomas, Mike Mathlin and I would get like, we would share, we would split 10% of whatever DC's licensing fee that they would get for it. So we would get money for it. That doesn't mean we control the character. It doesn't mean that we have any control once we're not doing the character physically. So some other creator can take it and do different things with, as is the case with um, Obsidian from Infinity Inc. Um, I think in um, the Manhunter comic in the early 2000s is I think the first where they they said Obsidian is a gay character, you know, and uh, and it's not like I mean I I remember reading it and being kind of shocked because I'd never really thought of it in those terms. I mean I'd really I honestly don't think I thought beyond whatever gender norm it was in my head, male, female kind of thing, just because that was not my experience. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I had any gay friends until I got into comics and I, I met a few people that, uh, you know, so I didn't really have that even in the back of my head as something. So as much as I went wanted to try to put in a, a black person in, into a Superman comic, I wasn't thinking on that level because for the most part, comics were always non-sexual. 
I don't know how, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I grew up in the sixties. It was all about, you know, Oh, can I, Peter Parker, can I pay my rent? Can I save Aunt May by getting her pills? You know, am I going to be able to afford college tuition? It wasn't, it wasn't so much of a romance thing because again, they were probably targeted to, uh, you know, prepubescent boys. <laughs> right. It's yeah. sort of like how that, how the, like, the Wayne boring Superman is like completely sexless. Like he's just like, yes, right. Lois, I, I'm your boyfriend, you know, but right. they're not, they're not hooking up or anything. He was built, he was built like a water heater. Right. He was like, <laughs> there was no angles on him, but, so uh, but it actually, and it, it, and I, one popped into my head that, <clears throat> which kind of directly addresses what you'd asked about characters having a subtext that's not necessarily known when um, I was working on Superman, John Byrne had created Maggie Sawyer, who was, a, <clears throat> she worked for the Metropolis, you know, special crimes unit or whatever. And she, uh, he flat out told me one day when we were having lunch, he said, oh, I just created a character um, and she's gay, but it's never going to be said it's only going to be implied and he said it won't need to be and i understand it's like you don't wear your heart on your sleeve you don't you know project your uh your whatever your whole life to, to strangers type of thing i think is where he was coming from so he had he had maggie sawyer and then he would show her at home and there was another woman living in her <laughs> in her apartment so it was like okay we get it we understand but that's the only one i could think of that was actually built in did you ever have to push for, you said, you know, earlier you said um, this character that we fought for, um, talking generally about characters, did you ever have to push for these kind of um, extra backstory things, whether it's uh, sexuality, religion, uh, ethnicity, um, and did you ever get pushed back from DC or yeah. your editor or anything like that? Yeah. Well, you never, I mean, we always, you know, I think we and me, plural and, you know, singular, you always try to, to throw something interesting and it doesn't always land. And that's the best way to put it. Um, when we were trying, when we were pitching Gangbuster, we got a lot of resistance from Marv Wolfman because of various reasons. I mean, you know, we wanted, Mike and I, Mike Macklin and I really wanted to use The Guardian because we were big fans of the Jack Kirby, Fourth World, and his Jimmy Olsen comic, where he had the Guardian, the Newsboy Legion, you know, in, in present day at that time. Talking and, like uh, they're so, from the 1920s. Right, right. But he, <laughs> we close. really wanted to use Guardian, and we were told by the editor that we couldn't use any Kirby characters because they were going to introduce them at a different point. I guess it was, it turned out it was in the Superman annual or something that Roger Stern wound up introducing, like the Cadmus Project, and I think he did do the Guardian in that uh, Superman annual. So we, anyways, we were kind of like, okay, well, Superman needs something. And the, the, our point of it, again, Mike only lasted one issue on Superman and that he had to quit because the writing was really slow and the deadlines got crazy, like right off the bat. So anyways, but when we were still hyped about it, um, the idea was to do Superman. Superman was always a little bit to me, I felt like Superman as a character was kind of boring. And that's why I think Clark Kent was the interesting way in 
but even as a super powered guy, he's way above, he's in every, above a lot of people's classes as far as the abilities and stuff. And what we wanted to do, and I specifically wanted to do was, I wanted to have a contrast between the poor neighborhood, which was suicide slum and metropolis general, like where the Daily Planet was. It's kind of like the difference between Manhattan and at the time, you know, the Bowery or Hell's Kitchen or something. And uh, we felt like Superman patrols the skies there and maybe he can cover everything, but he's not at ground level necessarily. He's fighting some superpowered guy up in, in the sky or over the ocean or whatever. So the idea of Gangbuster really was a, an attempt to show that there weren't all, you know, upwardly mobile white collar workers. You know, I mean, there's neighborhoods here where these are people who are struggling and where there are problems that reflected things beyond Superman's reach because there were social problems that maybe he couldn't step into because there's a mayor and there's a city council and there's, you know, structures that he he's not uh, able to or wouldn't uh, upset. So, uh, is it that, we, so is it that he wouldn't upset them or he wasn't sort of aware of them? Like, no, he was, I think the, the feeling was like, my feeling always was that the character, yeah, he could take over, he could take, he could empty the White House and take over. He could empty the United Nations. He could, basically he could rule, but that's not him. You know what right. I mean? He's the most powerful guy around. So if you're the most powerful guy around, you have to be very careful. And that was always in the back of my mind. You can't ever allow anybody to fear you. In other words, that's why he was very positive. He Loved. took care of the bad guys, but he didn't really terrorize anybody. You know, he wasn't Batman because he was so powerful that if people had a sense of fear, it would they would go, wait, this guy could rip my arm off or this guy could incinerate half of us. So in my brain, that was always a, a, a no-go. So Superman followed the rules. He would do what he could within the framework, but he was not able to solve everybody's problem, you know? And nor would he because he believed in people governing themselves and all that, you know? And that was always in the, again, it's, it's stupid, but the, the few things that you come up with when you're trying to figure a way into a character those are important ones for me they always were because it's like well why does he exist why is he different you know why does captain marvel smile a lot because captain marvel is a little kid who thinks it's great to be an adult you know that type of thing so you, you that was how that was my way in with superman so suicide slum exists and he can help and he often did help in those books but he was fighting to save 10 million people versus here's what's going on on the street. Gangbuster could save three people or he could help a family or he could, you know what I mean? His, his, his help was more along the lines of what Batman would do, you know? And that was, that was what we wanted. We wanted that contrast. And it felt like the reason I wanted him to be Hispanic was because when I, where I grew up, when I was, uh, um, my mom had a tavern in a neighborhood that went from Polish and German to Hispanic over the course of, you know, I mean, when I was in school, it was, his, it was pr predominantly Hispanic and Puerto Rican. And I fit in and they were all my friends. It wasn't like it was adversarial in any way. And my best friend uh, was uh, Frank Flores and we had plenty of uh, 
Rodriguez and Hernandez and all, and they're all my friends. So I felt like when I was doing this, it's like, yeah, there really aren't any Hispanic characters. You know, I mean, at that time, DC had Black Lightning. They were doing Black Goliath. They were trying something, but it was like, it feels like there should be Hispanic characters too, you know? So, so, so gangbuster uh, Jose Delgado had to somehow be that. And it, I did feel like that was a little bit of an upward uphill battle, um, but that got easier. I mean, I just started drawing him in, <laughs> you know? I mean, I kind of forced the issue. It's like, yeah, we're going to use him, <laughs> you know? That's amazing. I, I love, I love, I'm a huge fan of Jose Delgado. I, lo I love him. <laughs> One of my, I wish they would bring him back. Um, and Again, maybe, though, I mean, you know. I don't understand why it's like I, all the characters that I contributed side characters to Superman, Bibbo's another one. Those are characters based on, there was, my mom had her tavern and her tavern catered um, because we were both, she, my older brother, Mike was already in college. He's 16 years older. So I always remember him being off in school, but if my brother Joel and I were a couple of years apart, and my mom raising us by herself, she worked the tavern, we lived in the back. So she kind of worked at home kind of thing, you know? So all these people became family and she had the tavern open during the day. She opened at eight in the morning, closed at eight at night. And most of the clientele with the exception of after work, she had guys from the machine shop who came in, but the guys who were there all day and women were all old, you know, retired people who had no place to go. So they. They just sat and they socialized and they nursed the beer all day. And they were all real funny characters. You know, they were all, uh, uh, I guess they seemed like something out of the Thin Man or, you know, like a, a Damon Runyon story or something. They had, they all had interesting backgrounds, which I found out as I was older, not when I was little, but um, all that stuff, you know, eventually winds up in the Superman comics with Bibbo and the Ace of Clubs and stuff. And, you know, it becomes comedy relief to a degree, but that was like, that was my family when I was a kid, you know, and Bibbo was a real guy. He was a, uh, an old guy who worked on the docks and he, you know, clearly was an alcoholic, but he was a super nice guy. And he used to walk my brother and me to my grandmother's house when we were little. And, you know, he was, he was like our watchdog, our guardian. Um, the, just a beautiful, beautiful old guy who was tough as nails, you know. I saw him uh, when I was about 10 years old, I guess 10 or 11. Uh, he was rapping on the front window of the tavern on a Sunday when my mom was closed and my mom wouldn't answer it because he was really drunk and he wanted, you know, something to drink. <laughs> so some, one of the other neighbors called the police and what they call the paddy wagon showed up with about six cops who tried really hard to take this guy down. This guy was drunk practically off of his feet, right? He's swinging, these guys are hitting him in the head with billy clubs. It was horrifying for me as a kid because this was our friend, right? Um, but he wouldn't stop either. He just, he hated cops. He, it was, you know, it was like a Popeye fight, except for the fact of hearing a billy club, you know, with that uh, echo on his skull. Um, but we were able to, you know, my mom was able to go out there and step between the cops and say, stop, stop. And they just put the cuffs on him and, and took him to, to jail and we wound up bailing him out, you know, but, uh, but it was just, it, it, you know, like little things like that is that that's the life experience stuff that you kind of carry with you in, you make what you make of it. I mean, it didn't happen to me, but 
you know, we certainly witnessed a lot of violence in that neighborhood, and yet we still had a fun, decent childhood, you know. Um, Where did you grow up? In Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, oh, so you're a Midwesterner. Yeah. You're just a neighbor of mine. South side, Milwaukee, yeah. we were right across, I don't oh. know if you know Milwaukee at all. If you ever, I do, I do. We're right I know across, well. the, I, yeah. the, the, we were right on the Fifth Street Viaduct, south side, we mm -hmm. went downtown, the big bridge over mm -hmm. the Milwaukee River. It's kind of like a, almost like I a love high... the Pabst is my favorite theater. Which one? The Pabst, yeah. The Pap, the Pabst. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there was that's the cool thing about the uh, that history in that area, is that the Milwaukee River, I mean, they built the the Sixth Street, and then what Sixth Street, and then Twenty Fifth Street Viaduct, Twenty Sixth Street, whatever. They built the, the the viaducts to go over the Industrial Valley, as a way for cars to avoid having to deal with stuff and they were going over rivers and stuff too but uh um you know the smell of pollution was always fairly strong as a kid um but we used to walk that that sixth street viaduct we'd go across the downtown and that's where we got our comics down on i think it was like fourth and wisconsin right across from uh woolworths there was a newsstand and uh that newsstand i just some a friend of mine who's still in wisconsin was had sent me a little thing a little uh you know, I guess a nostalgic thing with pictures of the guys who ran the newsstand. <laughs> what were you getting at the in those days? What were you what were all, you collecting Marvels, in the 60s? All Marvels, mm -hmm. Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Tales of Suspense with Captain America and Iron Man and Spider-Man. Do you still have them? All those guys. I was a big I wasn't a big Kirby fan really until he went to DC. As I think mm -hmm. God knows why the, I mean, I, I love the Fantastic Four now, but at the time I wasn't like a huge Fantastic Four fan. I loved Captain America when he drew him. I loved that stuff. But uh, I remember that new, the fourth world stuff, just mind blowing. And I, it was, I guess I would have been like 13 or something maybe when that debuted. So maybe the right age to feel like I was being sophisticated. Yeah, perfect time. You know? Yeah. yeah. And it gets back to that sort of mythology that you described liking, right? The sort of it, like fourth world really builds into that. You know, Jack Kirby got done sort of building another religion that basically created his own. Oh, yeah. So, well, yeah. I mean, do, do, you, do you think that? I think the New God stuff certainly feels more Jewish uh, uh, inspired than the Thor stuff because of the, I mean, some of the naming characters. Yeah, High Father sort yeah. of. Well, feels I mean, he that had way. the source yeah. wall and he had. Um, you know, he yeah. had the, the the swap of the, that, that concept felt, I mean, again, maybe that's just an old world kind of thing, but it felt like there was a lot of uh, weight to, to the entire story yeah. because of the fact that you had Orion, who was, you know, Darkseid's son, being yeah. raised by these more pacifistic, you know, genteel gods. And poor Scott Free is, you know, just run through the, I guess the gauntlet or whatever on uh, in Armageddon or whatever. I mean, it just, it's yeah. like, it was, it felt really just super compelling to me at that age, you know? And again, you're probably right that that mythology aspect, I think it hit, it probably hit home to me more powerfully than the Norse stuff because the Norse stuff wasn't really delved into as much in Thor yeah. as, you know, there was mostly earth adventures and then, right you know, the palace intrigue was happening in the, uh, you know, four pages in an issue and the rest of it was him fighting, you know, the absorbing man or 
something. Yeah, it wasn't really to Walter Simonson that it really dove into yeah, yeah. into the Norse mythology yeah, in a really exactly. cool way. I mean, I, yeah. I think that was the big change there. Um, but yeah, the the New God stuff just had it all right from the beginning. You know? I mean, the idea that even like in the Jimmy Olsen stuff, you know, the implication yeah. that there's some evil mastermind and you find out his dark side, <clears throat> you know, is behind these uh, moves on Metropolis and Earth and, and the anti-life equation. I mean, those are all very exotic. Like that anti-life equation is such an exotic sounding concept, you know, um, and nobody's, to my, I guess to my taste, it's a type of thing that really can't be described and can't be, once you think you've understood it, it loses the, whatever mystery and aura it has. You know, it's like the, you know, I guess whatever the opening the box to find out if the cat is dead or alive. Yeah, I mean, Schrodinger's, right. box. Schrodinger's yeah. cat. Yeah, there's, more power, yeah. there's more power to it as a name, as a concept. You know it's bad, but once you define what it is, it's easy to go, oh, that's all? Yeah, he just wants yeah. to, he wants right. to imprint humanity or whatever. It feels like, you know, it should have a, uh, almost an open-ended thing that it can be whatever you think would be the worst thing, you know, as opposed to, I might think something different than you might, that somebody else might think something different. You know, what's your biggest horror? That's what it is, you know? But to my, my brain at that age, it was just very exotic and very, you know, it just sounded scary and cool. And I've had so much empathy for Orion because he would lose it and he would become more animalistic, almost Jekyll Hyde kind of thing. Um, and it, which, you know, you every kid went through that where you'd, you'd do something that disappointed your parents. And then, you know, it was like out of character and that made it even worse, you know, but, it, like, mm. you know, so there was a lot of stuff as a kid that I really empathized and, and, and felt, you know, it's interesting to think in those, in those terms because they found ways, Kirby found ways to include, you know, uh, a, a black, god and and you know when you see the movies like the even with the when thor debuted you know you you had i'm sure there were people who were going well that's not the asgard from the comics and the, but in essence they're all concepts you know and as much as we all probably have a certain glory days time of reading comics or liking a certain character or whatever here's this is the best it's going to be you know, the concepts themselves are, are, are like uh, very malleable. And um, I mean, it's uh, to me, it feels like the most important thing to have those characters, Superman, any of those characters should be relevant to the current audience that's reading them, you know? Yeah. I mean, they can't be like trapped in amber. Uh, I think that's the worst, probably the worst thing, you know, that could happen. You just lose, you lose a thread or you, even if you lose a generation of readers, you've broken a thread that's existed for 80 years in, in, in a lot of these cases, you know? Yeah, and I think that's one of our favorite ways to compare comic books to Judaism because in so many ways, we kind of think of Jewish ritual also as like needing to respond to the issues of today and each new generation gets to discover it anew and play with it and, and, and pass it on. And I think, you know, you were talking earlier about sort of people who are very deep in their practice and Henry and I are both from, you know, I think a more 
progressive branch of Judaism when we're really like, we're interested in keeping this thing alive, not necessarily doing yeah. it the way that it was done exactly yeah. well 200 years ago yeah. or 500 years ago. So really fun to just hear that description and to sort yeah, of yeah. reaffirm that like we see in comic books in a lot of ways what we see in Judaism. And that's why yeah. we love bringing it together. Um, I think, well, I think we'd that, love that's probably, oh, yeah. that, I was gonna say that's probably true, even though you think of things as, I mean, being inflexible to a degree, I always felt like you know, even though I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, I, I still, it's almost like, and I'm just going to sound really bad <laughs> when I think of it as like, I still like the Milwaukee Bucks and I still like the Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> I don't go to games anymore. They're your but team. I'm still, yeah. I'm still interested. Yeah. So in yeah. a way, I'm, I'm still, I always find it interesting to read papal updates and, and what the new, you know, the, uh, any given new Pope has as, as uh, uh, what to say or how he's going to change something or whatever. So I feel like that's the funny thing. Whenever anybody tries to put any of the religions I know much about, when they try to put them in a box, I think that's always wrong thinking in the same way that you imagine everybody maintains their car to the degree that the manual says or that they do. You know what I mean? It's like there's yeah. always flexibility and people always you know, slide a little bit here or there on stuff, but they still maintain their, you know, uh, they're still able to, to, to walk the straight path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. I think we'd love to, if you don't mind, wrap it up with just some quick, hopefully like rapid fire questions to start bringing sure. it to a close, yeah. <laughs> if I can give I, I got rapid some... fire answers. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 got, I think these, I, I got some rapid fire ones. Okay, so how do you pronounce wonder woman's mother's name i used to say hippolyta but i've heard hippolyta too. hippolyta okay yeah, ah okay both. so we we, we on, on our podcast we've had various like discussions about certain pronunciations um so that 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 sort of i thought Hippo, hippolyta yeah. brandon thought hippolyta so i guess we're back to where we were <laughs> I only say, I think in infinity inc uh wonder woman's daughter is lyda trevor and I always thought, well, if it's Lyda Trevor, would it be Hippolyta? I always thought of Hippolyta, though. So that feels more, yeah. you know, I don't know if that's more Greek or, or which, which that is. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Carl Kessel Carl or Carl Kiesel. Kiesel? I do know that. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thank you. This is, we had this argument. <laughs> it was a friendly argument. We In our first episode, because he's the one who canonically made the thing uh jewish so thank you for clearing that up i don't try to remember when would that kirby drawing of the thing with the uh mm -hmm. did he have like the like a the yamaka in a it probably appeared first in like a jack kirby collector or something that's my feeling and i think carl i'm not speaking trying to speak for him but i think that that actually doing that story where he is you know um officially a jew or whatever kind of sprung out of that i think i've seen that drawing because nobody had seen that drawing mm -hmm. really except maybe mark evanier and people close to the family or whatever so i think when that showed up that's my feeling my gut feeling and he felt like you know carl is that type of guy he's very thoughtful he's a very thoughtful writer too um, but just personally he's a very genial thoughtful person not the type of person who I mean, I think I'm prone to sometimes being a little nasty to some people, not all often, but he's like super, super even and mellow. And I think, 
I think he puts a lot of thought into stuff like that. What are you working on now? Anything you'd like to plug? I'm, I'm like doing a lot of covers, but I'm also working. I actually spent most of my downtime. I've been doing like a self-published comic that I sell at comic shows. Mm -hmm. And I also have a link for uh, on my uh, Orchester's Random Thoughts at uh, on Google Blogs. But uh, it's a character of mine from, I created him when it was probably in 1974. And I've been doing, trying to, do stories i guess the third one i just did i did 12 pages over the last year and a half of proton stories so <laughs> that was my goal i just kept trying to say turning other work down and doing commissions but trying to work on stuff because i had these stories and i still have these stories in my head and i just you know i don't get the opportunity to do much writing that nobody calls me from marvel or dc so i feel like you know, the only way to get to exercise that muscle, you know, the writing stuff is, has always been fun for me. I mean, I, you can't shut ideas down. You always, you know, always have them. And so uh, I've been trying to, instead of saying, gee, I wish I had time for, I've been trying to make time to do some of my own stuff. And it's, it's satisfying when you, you know, I mean, as much as I, I can't believe it took me a year and a half to do 12 pages. At the same time, it's like, Wow, I did 12 pages. <laughs> so yeah. I'm willing to look at the positive. <laughs> How do folks find you for commissions? Um, they can, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm at uh, Jerry Ordway, I guess. Is it, how does it work? Jerry Ordway at twitter.com. Yeah. But I think, my handles, I think there's like just capital Jerry J, Ordway. capital O, but it's, yeah. So you can yeah, find I would it say there. you're a must follow. I would, yeah. I would classify you as that. I, yeah, I try to balance. I try not to, I try to put up artwork and I try to, if I find interesting stories, I retweet them. Um, like today's New York Times had a story on James uh, Gunn about uh, his his transition from going to suicide, to suicide Squad from Guardians of the Galaxy and being fired. And that was really interesting. I, I mean, I, I always, I figured comic fans, if they're reading it, they might not see that story. If they see it, I think they'll enjoy it. And uh, sometimes I, I recently in the last four years, I've probably tweeted more politics than I ever had before that because I just couldn't, yeah. I couldn't be quiet any longer. I yeah. just had a hard time. I, I, I went into this thinking I don't want to be political, but I just have been so horrified that you know I, uh, I just couldn't be quiet. I thought you know there's a point where if I'm going to lose a couple people. I'm not trying to preach to you. I'm just trying to show you examples and, you know, hopefully you will learn from some of these, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. I, I still, I'm like pinching myself. I can't believe I'm talking to you. I mean, truly Jerry, Mr. Ordway, you, just you and Jerry's Dan Jurgens are like, you're, when I close my eyes and I think of Superman, I picture your, cool. Superman. Yeah. Well, that were the, we're the guys. Thank you. Yeah, it was good talking to you. I mean, I, I like the idea of not, I mean, on, honestly, sometimes I, I get so many requests to do podcast stuff and a lot of people just want you to either rehash stuff or, I mean, I, I'm a talker anyway, so I, I can fill the space, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of dull to have to, you know, do the same exact thing over and over. So I'm happy sure. to talk about <laughs> just stuff different stuff or grab it out of the air thank you so much jerry I, I, again well, we you. can't thank you enough and we hope to talk to you again soon well thank yeah. you very much it was fun
it was Thanks, really serious. fun. It was definitely really send me a link though when you when you get your thing put together. We will for 100%. sure. We'll okay, do. it was good talking to you guys. Thank good you. Talking to you. Take, Take care. care. Good night. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Jewish Comics Pod, or you can email us at Jewish Comics Podcast at gmail.com.